0: Okay, it's time for um, the um, message of the word to be presented. That was a good prayer. (laughs) Thanks, Peter. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Um, We're going to preach from Matthew 25, but I want to just do a little bit of a review, uh, because since we're speaking about faith review and expectation, uh, if you're visiting with us today, we're working our way through Jesus' last recorded sermon. So Jesus is the greatest teacher that ever lived. And uh, as Matthew tells the story of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, the first of the four Gospels we have in the New Testament, uh, he has four big blocks of teaching by Jesus. And so this is the fourth of them. And it all started when Jesus' disciples asked him two questions. And so back at chapter 24, verse 3, have a look at it. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, first question, tell us... When will these things be? So the things that Jesus has just been describing, which talked about the destruction of the extraordinary temple in Jerusalem. So when will these things be? And question two, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So this whole big section, chapter 24 and 25, Jesus' last recorded sermon, which was actually delivered in private to the disciples. It wasn't a big audience. It was just the 12 disciples and perhaps the others that were there as well, but not a big crowd jesus disciples jesus speaks about the, he tells about the end of all things and so this is jesus version of the end of all things when will you come the disciples want to know well there's two short answers we can give to that so the first question is tell us when will these things be and he answers that in chapter 30, verse 36 of chapter 24 he says concerning that day and hour no one knows even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So the short answer to question one, tell us when these things will be, is no one knows. Now we've spoken about this before. If ever you hear someone who says, I've done very careful work and I've worked out that Jesus is going to come, ignore them. They're a heretic and a false teacher. They're doing what Jesus said cannot be done. Ignore them. Have nothing to do with them. Now you can make a tidy pile of money if you do come up with DVDs and books that tell you all that sort of stuff, but they're doing what Jesus said is impossible. And if Jesus is the Lord of heaven and Earth that He is, to try to attempt to do what the Lord of Heaven and Earth says is impossible is foolishness. Have nothing to do with them. Question one: when will these things be? No one knows. Question two: What will be the coming, the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, he tells he gives two illustrations verse 37 of chapter 24 he says it will be like the days of Noah so will be the coming of the son of man but then in down it down in verse 43 second illustration he says the coming of the son of man will be like a thief coming in the night now both of those are illustrations of events that were not expected I've been burgled, it was unpleasant, I disturbed the burglar, I wasn't expecting him and he didn't leave a note in our letterbox saying I'll be round Wednesday. The whole point of those two illustrations is to say there will be no sign. So when will these things be? No one knows. Not even Jesus at that time. What will be the signs? There will be no sign. It will be unexpected. And so because of that, Jesus gives a series of commands and a series of encouragements. And so the critical message of chapter 24 is not meant to make us speculate, it's to encourage our faithfulness and our endurance and our patience. And so there'll be threats from without, like wars and rumours of wars and floods and famines and those sorts of things, they could make you fearful. We're not to be fearful. Uh, Some of us know Esther Scarborough. We know Esther Scarborough, don't we? I was at a, a, a gathering with Esther Scarborough, a missionary from uh, in Indonesia. She's been there 20 years. And um, they do extraordinary work in a very poor part of Indonesia. And uh, she was taunted by a government official who said, I'm going to deport you, I'm going to get you out of this country. He said, are you frightened? And she said, no. Now, Esther's about that tall. And this government official was trying to bully her. Are you frightened? No, she said. And she went on with what she was going to do anyway. Right? Why is she not frightened? Because she knows her future, her destiny is in Jesus' hands, not in the hands of the the Indonesian immigration department. Right? So we're not to be people of fear, no matter what goes on in the world, because we have a hope. Right? But there's fears within too that might come from the fact that Christians are not always popular. And uh, we may well be persecuted for our faith. And Jesus says, don't give in to fear for that either. But here's another threat, complacency. And that's addressed in this chapter as well. So Jesus says, for the entire period of time while his people are waiting for him to return, that entire period will be characterised by wars, rumours of wars, floods and famines, natural disasters. Got that? Expect it. The entire history of the world is is one of warfare and disaster. And also, he says, the period of time between his return to heaven and his return to earth is going to be characterised as it was in the days of Noah by people marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking. So the whole period of time between Jesus returning to heaven, he says to his disciples, and returning to earth is going to be characterised by disaster, and normality I've never heard anybody say oh there was a wedding today I think Jesus must be coming soon (laughs) oh there was blokes down the pub drinking I think Jesus must be coming soon you see there are extraordinary events and there's the ordinary humdrum every day that just keeps going around and it's the ordinary humdrum every day that makes people think well where is he perhaps he's not coming at all because life just goes on right well to address those things chapter 24 verse 4 Jesus says see that no one leads you astray that's the first command verse 6 see that you are not alarmed so don't be frightened verse 13 he gives us an encouragement the one who endures to the end will be saved so don't quit following him don't think you've done enough oh I followed Jesus yesterday and this day today just seems a bit hard I did a beach mission once does that count no Jesus says keep enduring Verse 42, stay awake, don't go to sleep. You don't know on what day your Lord is coming. And verse 44, be ready. And so, stay awake, be patient, be ready. Because you see, the day of Jesus' return is going to catch too many people by surprise. We don't want to be among them. The other thing is that several stories that he tells indicate that the delay may seem long. So in verse 48, chapter 25, verse 5, chapter 25, verse 19, there's an indication that Jesus is going to be away for a long time. And so because of that, we mustn't think, oh, he's not going to come back at all. We've got to be patient and wait. So he tells three stories about patience and waiting and waiting with alertness. The first of them is in at the end of chapter 24 and he tells a story about two servants, one who's faithful and wise and one who's wicked. One of them waited sensibly, the other one waited foolishly. Didn't think the master was going to come back. The second story that you had last week is at the beginning of chapter 25. It talks about a wedding feast where there's bridesmaids who are waiting for the bridegroom to come. And he's later than they expecting, and some of them run out of oil. So that's a, a story about being ready uh, and not being found unready when Jesus comes. But story number three is the one we're going to read now. So please have your Bible open at Matthew 25, and we're going to read from verse 14. And uh, this is the story that's very often called the parable of the talents. So Matthew 25, starting at verse 14... For it will be like a man going on a journey. Now you might already be wondering what is it? Well you go back to the beginning of chapter 25, the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven, this is the next part in Jesus' explanation. For it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a cast list here. There's the man, uh, the man going on a long journey. Jesus told stories because sometimes stories impress things that are really important on our minds. Uh, One of the great older poets said, Truth embodied in a tale finds entrance through lowly doors. Truth embodied in a tale finds entrance through lowly doors. If you tell a story... It sometimes causes people to remember and the moral of the story is impressed on their consciousness. Jesus told stories to make very, very important points about the nature of the kingdom. In his story, clearly the man who's going away is Jesus. The master of the household is Jesus. The servants are those who want to be in the kingdom. Now, don't put your hands up. But my question for you is, do you want to be a member of God's kingdom? The alternative is unspeakable. Right. So we're talking today about what it takes to find yourself a member of God's kingdom. And that's the most important search and discovery you'll ever embark on. So listen carefully because this is just too good to miss. Now you'll notice there that these these servants, and there's three of them, uh, aspirants to the kingdom, uh, they're entrusted. With the master's property. Now, notice that word entrusted. This property is not theirs. It always belongs to the master. The master's going away. We're not told where. We're not even told for how long. There's no indication in the story that he told his servants, I'll be back in six months. It was not at all unknown back in those days that people would go on trading missions that took them a very long time. All we know is that he said, While I'm gone, look after what I've given you. But it was always his. The expectation was that these servants would use what he trusted to them in a way that would please the master because it was his. They had to use it well according to his will. Notice also that it was distributed unequally. Now us Aussies would go, hang on, that's a bit rough. Five to him, two to him and one to him, what's going on here? It's the master, so he can do what he wants with it. Isn't that the way you run your house? You own it, you can do what you like with it. This is the master's property. So he's given one fellow five, he's given one two. So what? What's it to you? He's the master, he can do as he pleases. Then he went away. Now this story is to help his disciples and to help us 21st century followers of Jesus in Mafra work out what we're to do while we're waiting for Jesus to come back we've been told not to be scared not to be frightened not to be alarmed not to be misled we've been told to be awake and alert and on our guard and this is what that means so Jesus hasn't left us in the dark he said if you want to know how to wait wait like this wait as servants of a master who's gone away Now, we use the word talent in a way that they wouldn't have understood back when Jesus was talking about it. We, we've we got TV programs like Australia's Got Talent, haven't we? Right? Uh, and Australia's Got Talent. I've never watched it. I've only ever seen the advertisement. It's, it seems that the kind of people that go on Australia's Got Talent are people uh, you know, who simultaneously can juggle five bowls of spaghetti uh, while chewing gum with somebody standing on their shoulders reciting Shakespeare, right? Uh, is that a talent? Right? That's not what Jesus meant, right? A talent back in those days was a unit of weight. Now, if you've got an ESV Bible, have a look at the um, the footnote. You'll see a little number next to the word talent uh, and you'll see a footnote. Take it down to the bottom of the page and you'll see there that it says a talent represented 20 years' wages, right? Now, it may not have, right? That's one suggestion. A talent was a unit of weight, and people had their wealth weighed out to them. Now that could have been copper, it could have been silver, it could have been gold. So depending what the metal was, would depend how much it was actually worth. But in my reading during the week, uh, I discovered this, that a talent was equivalent to between 26 and 36 kilograms. So it's a fair chunk, right? If you weighed out 26 kilograms of copper, 26 kilograms of gold, it's gonna be a fair, it's gonna cost a fair bit. Anyway, let's assume it's silver. Let's sort of go halfway. Uh, what I read during the week was that one talent equals 60 days' wages for an ordinary worker. Now, I did some maths on this. Um, the average Australian weekly wage in 2022, according to a government website, is 17, a little over $1,700. Right? If we divide that by seven... Take it down to a daily wage. That's about two hundred and fifty-two dollars, right? So, a five talent allocation to one of the servants would would equivalent be the equivalent of about seventy-six thousand Australian dollars, right? So, number one, he's given the equivalent of seventy-six thousand dollars of the master's wealth to do something with. Servant two, uh, about thirty thousand. Servant one, about 15,000. Now, none of those is an inconsiderable sum, is it? Right? If I came to you and said, your servant one, you can have 15,000. I haven't got 15,000 to give you, but you know, that's, that's a big chunk of money. And so each of these has been given a fairly significant trust, um, which means that the master has plenty to share around. Well, anyway, verse 16, have a look at it there. He who had received the five talents went at once, And traded with them and he made five talents more so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. So servant number one no delay there was no mucking around he just got straight on with the job. He was like the ant from Proverbs 6 verse 6 that Peter read before he's no sluggard. He wasn't folding his arms and resting. He just got straight on with the master's business. And we're not told that servant number two did exactly that, but we do know that both of them doubled their investment. But then we get to verse 18, but, which pulls us up with a start, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So he did nothing with it. Now remember that this was trusted to him. The master has taken some of what he owns and trusts it to the servants, expecting that while he's gone, they'll do something useful with it. They were to use it as the master would have if he was around. Servant three did nothing with it. He just buried it. So verses 19 to 30 of our reading talk about the settlement of accounts. And what it does is it reveals what the servants think about the master. Because on the basis of what they thought about the master is what they did with the wealth. Now, after a long time, it says in verse 19, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more. So servant number one, he doubles what he's been given and he receives the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. So the servant's lived up to the master's trust. He's proven himself. The master says to him, "Faith, you've been faithful over a little. And so he says, I'm going to set you over much. So there's a reward in proportion to what the, the servant's done. But there's more than that. He says, enter into the joy of your master. Now imagine that. Back in those days, a master had servants or slaves. No slave would have expected to ever enjoy the master's presence. They were just there as human tools to work. But this master says, I want you not only to enjoy the product of what you've done, I want you to enter into my joy, whatever shape that took. And he says the same to the second servant. Exactly the same commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Both of those servants knew that the master as he left was someone that could be trusted. And so without reserve and without delay, they set about doing what the master had trusted them to do. And in the end, he proved exactly as they thought he was. He was a person that could be trusted. Imagine a boss so good that he rewards you that well. And he says, not only am I giving you a pay rise? I want you to come to my holiday house and share a holiday with me. Imagine a boss that good. They kind of knew that they could expect if they did their bit, he'd do his, but he went beyond. But the third servant, he reveals an attitude to the master quite different. So look at verse 24. He he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. And he goes on. Now, that idea of being a hard man means that the third servant thinks that the master is cruel, somewhat vicious, someone without mercy. We've already seen that that's just not true. We've already seen that this master is someone that can be trusted to reward his servants appropriately. So servant three says, well, I didn't do anything with it because I just wasn't sure. What that means is servant three is someone who didn't know his master. He had no knowledge of the master's character. Servants 1 and 2 invested knowing that the master was a man that could be trusted. Servant 3 didn't trust his master because he didn't know him. Now you'll notice that when the master replies, he says um, in verse 26, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered whether I scattered no seed question mark he's repeating back the excuse that the slothful servant made he says that's what you thought well why didn't you do something like give it to a banker and at least get a little bit of interest on it don't just bury it but it's a question mark the master's not agreeing that that's the kind of person he is and you'll notice the one part of what the slothful servant says that he doesn't repeat, he doesn't acknowledge being a hard man. He doesn't acknowledge being a master without mercy. So what he's saying by implication is, servant three, you don't know me, you got me wrong. Who likes being misjudged? Is there anyone here who likes having their character maligned and misjudged? Spoken unfairly? Servant three didn't know the master. And he he, he credited him with really nasty character qualities. No wonder the Master's cross. Now the implications of this story are pretty obvious. A talent, a gift, a trust from Jesus is to be used in a way that Jesus our Master approves of. It's not to be buried. It's not to be hidden. It's to be put to work so that it can be returned to him with value added. Now, Some years ago, if you don't know, I, I, I like music. I've been playing music for many years and uh, every now and again in my musical journey someone will come up to me and say, I've got an instrument at home I'd like you to have. It doesn't happen often, nearly as, nearly as often as I'd like it to but every now and again someone will come up to me and say, when I was teaching up in Nil, I'd done a gig and this fella came up to me And he said, we've got this old violin that's been in the family for years. No one plays it anymore. I'd like you to have it. Now, I don't play the fiddle, but back in those days, I thought, gee, given a few moments, I could probably get something to work on it. And if I, you know, so he said, I'd like you to have it. Then he came to see me a few days later and he said, no, I've asked the family and they want to keep it in the family. He said, it just sits in its case. No one plays it. No one's interested in it. He said, I wanted you to have it because you would have played it. What's a violin for? it's for playing why keep it in a case no good in a case what's a talent for not burying it's for using it's for returning to the one who gave it to you what do you have that you weren't given life's a gift the whole principle of this story is everything that you have you've been given See, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And the gifts that we have, that the, the idea of the, the talent, it was a weight that weighed out money. The idea sort of changed itself over the years so it became a, a synonym for wealth. And that's how it's come into our language as being a description of a personal attribute. Now, whatever you've got, whether it's your wealth your work your family your abilities whatever you've got is a gift actually it's a trust Jesus has given it to you he's trusted it to you and now it's your job to use it in such a way that you can return it to him when he returns with value added but to bury it is to say I don't know you Jesus I don't get you so what's the moral of the story Well, there's a reward for good and faithful servants. And that reward is more opportunity to do more work. Now, our our first human ancestor, Adam, wasn't put in the Garden of Eden to bludge. He was put there to work it and keep it. I believe that when Jesus returns, he's going to make everything new. We're going to live out eternity in a wonderfully restored world. The new creation, it's called. And I think in that new creation, one of God's blessings for us will be that we're allowed to work for him. And our work won't be a burden or a chore, it will be an unending joy. And I think that what Jesus is talking about here is in the new creation, those who've been faithful with the little that he's trusted with with them with here on earth will be trusted with more opportunities for service in that new creation because we've proven ourselves worthy of his trust. But I think there's more to it than that because if you've been serving Jesus any length of time, would you agree with me that it is joy? Do, do you enjoy serving Jesus? I do. Uh, I can't think of anything better. So what sort of service should you be doing for Jesus? Everything you've got to gift, everything you've got comes from God. Uh, what sort of joy should you be uh, looking for what sort of service should you be rendering? How? Be a good mum. Ben, be a good dad. That's your number one priority at the moment, I reckon. Um, now's not the time to be flying off on evangelistic mission trips around the world. Now's the time to be devoting yourself to being really good parents, right? If you're grandparents, well, that's a big job too, right? Um, now, presumably, you've done some training with your kids. And uh, So they may not need you as much as they did, so perhaps you could go on an evangelistic mission trip. But what about your work? <coughs> Are you a good employee? Are you the sort of employee that when the boss gives you a job, they know that it will be done well? And when you do it well, they'll say, and she's a Christian. The Apostle Paul talks about how our lives need to adorn the doctrine. Doctrine means what we believe. So in other words, we need to make what we believe about Jesus look beautiful in the eyes of others by the way we go about our lives. Now, there are some workers who grizzle and complain and they leave things half done. That's not a Christian way of working. A Christian way of working wants to exceed the boss's expectations because it's something that brings credit to Jesus. Now, of course, there's other things. You've got wealth. Every one of us here has wealth. Right? That's part of our talent. That's part of what we've been trusted with. What are you doing with it? You're hoarding it? Or are you putting it to work so that it's going to return a kingdom investment interest? <coughs> Listening to Esther Scarborough last night, uh, they run a hospital in a very poor part of Indonesia. They've had to close one of their main wards because they haven't got enough money to keep it open. The needs are still there, but they haven't got enough money. Now I read during the week that if every Christian gave 10% of what they earn, we could eliminate world hunger. Why is it that we have so many hungry people in the world? Because we have so many selfish people. I'll tell you another one. Um, I'm paid by this church, thank you very much. I'm very grateful for that, and my wife is too. Um, Every church with 10 members, if those 10 members were working, could afford a pastor if each of them tithed. Couldn't they? And that pastor would be paid the average of that congregation's income. Pretty simple maths, isn't it? Right? The gospel would go further if Christians were more generous, but our wealth is part of what we've been trusted with by our master while we wait for him to return. Now, this is not unimportant. So look what happened to the worthless servant. Verse 30. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a dreadful outcome for a person who didn't know Jesus. This person thought he was on the way to the kingdom, but it turns out he wasn't. Now that's judgment. That's a really stern word. That's the worst possible outcome. The best possible outcome of your life is that when you meet Jesus on judgment day, he says, well done good and faithful servant, that's as good as it gets that's better promotion, better than a promotion better than a pay rise, better than a year long holiday, the best that you can hope for is well done good and faithful servant the worst is to find yourself in the outer darkness where there's weeping unending sorrow and gnashing of teeth, now I say this with great caution because this was me I deserve that Grace, God's gift, is amazing because it saves wretches like me. But it'll save a wretch like you too because we have no hope outside of Jesus. That's why he died. Jesus died so that our sins could be forgiven. But a person who turns their back on that, who doesn't know their master as merciful and gracious and kind, who thinks that he's hard and unyielding, That person will find themselves in the outer darkness where they have an eternity to regret their decision, an eternity of teeth-grinding anger. What a horrific future. So I don't know where you stand with Jesus today, but I want to be found worthy on the day that he returns. And the only way that I'll be able to be found worthy is to have surrendered what he's given me back to him with interest as I use what he's given me for the extension of his kingdom. There's a wonderful little verse in Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, verse 10. It says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Whatever your hand finds to do. So what are the opportunities that Jesus has given you? Whatever your hand finds to do. Now, Fanny Crosby was one of the great hymn writers, and she wrote a song with that in mind called To the Work. I'd like to finish with this. She says this, To the work, to the work, we are servants of God. Let us follow the path that our master has trod with the balm of his counsel, our strength to renew. Let us do with our might what our hands find to do. And the chorus goes toiling on, toiling on, toiling on, toiling on. Let us work and trust. Let us watch and pray and labour till the master comes. That's Matthew 25. The Parable of the Talents. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to take very seriously these words that come from the lips of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Please help us to look at our lives in the light of these things. Uh, We thank you for every good thing that you've given to us. We 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 acknowledge that they're ours on trust, and so we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to be found worthy of that trust as we work with what you've given us for the good of the kingdom and for the good of others. Help us not to hoard these things, to keep them to ourselves. Help us instead to return them to you with interest uh, and help us to remain vigilant and alert and, uh, and active until the Lord Jesus calls us to be with him. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.